0: When that lift went in, they they named it the Ski Mobile Express and uh, designed this lift, which were cars that went up the mountain, one person at a time. It went about 60% of the way up the mountain when they first built it. Well, then Hannes Schneider arrived from Austria he got off the train in North Conway and looked up at Mount Washington. He goes, this is fantastic. Yeah. And he goes, and they go, no, it's over here. This is Cranmore. And uh, he came over, but he was appalled that the lift didn't go to the top. He said, well, what are you doing?
1: Welcome to the Storm! I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, bringing you a conversation with the leader of a New England Classic today. Before we get there, please jump over to StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Not only is the podcast just a small part of the Storm, but the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. Go to stormskiing.com, and you will find a companion article for this podcast, which includes maps, charts, historical tidbits, and tons of additional context on our conversation. There, you can sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter to make sure you get future podcasts in your inbox the moment they're live. But the Storm Skiing newsletter includes much more than just the podcast and associated articles. I am breaking down the world of lift-served skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. It was in this newsletter just last week that the storm broke the news that Cranmore's neighbor, Black Mountain, had reversed the decision to not open for the 2023-24 ski season that the ski area had announced just the week before. My subscribers had that news before everyone else. So please, join them. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Journal. Before we get to Cranmore, a quick word from my sponsor, Snowbound Expo. Winter is just around the corner, and that can only mean one thing. It is time to gear up for the biggest snow sports event of the year. That's right, Snowbound Expo is just weeks away. And I'm stoked to say that I am partnering with this huge event for the second consecutive year. The Expo kicks off the 2023-24 winter for families, skiers, and riders, and takes place from November 3rd to 5th, 2023, at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. The lineup for this year is epic and includes Sean White, Dan Egan, Lindsay Jacobelis, Brenna Huckabee, Doug Lewis, Julia Kern, Ted Liggetty, and many more. There are more than 150 brands and resorts that you can shop from, including major ski and snowboard brands, accessories, apparel, and tech for the season ahead. You can view the full list at snowboundexpo.com backslash exhibitors. You will also see free entertainment for the family all weekend, including the mega indoor slope, skate to ski with rollerblades, Nordic skiing at the cross country experience, selfies, swag, après ski and much more. You can redeem your free tickets to Snowbound Expo by using code PODCAST at the ticket checkout at snowboundexpo.com. Episode 149, Ben Wilcox, President and General Manager of Cranmore Mountain, New Hampshire. There are a handful of lifts that are so closely knotted to their ski area's identities that it's hard to imagine one without the other. After all, what would Mad River Glen be without its single chair? Or Cannon Mountain without its tram? Or Smuggler's Notch without the amazing 2,150 vertical foot Madonna double chair? But sometimes what once sparkled becomes impractical. A revolution demoted to an obstacle. Such was the case with the Cranmore Ski Mobile. We take chairlifts for granted today, but surface lifts were the de facto uphill transportation mechanisms for the first couple decades of New England skiing. So when Cranmore founder Harvey Dow Gibson built a 3,000 foot long track to carry four wheeled single passenger ski mobiles more than halfway up the ski area, it was an instant hit. The only chairlift in New England at the time was a single chair on Mount Row at Gunstock. The Ski-Mobile lasted for more than 50 years. Generations of New Englanders remember it fondly. But in 1990, Cranmore demolished it. Today, a high-speed quad named the Ski-Mobile Express runs along a similar top-to-bottom line. But Cranmore, it turned out, was not inseparable from the Ski-Mobile. In the three decades since the wooden trellis came down, the ski area has firmly established itself as one of the most consistent and capable operators in New England. Today, it is a gem, inseparably knotted to the resort town of North Conway. So, why did the ski mobile come down? And how did the mountain thrive regardless? That is our story for today. Oh, one quick note. Ben and I recorded this conversation after Black Mountain had announced that it would close for the 2023-24 ski season. But before its owners reversed that decision, I've left Ben's commentary on Black Mountain in here, however, as he has some important insight and points to make about the value of Black Mountain to the regional ski scene. Let's go. My guest today has been president and general manager of Cranmore Mountain Resort, New Hampshire, since 2004. Founded in 1937... Cranmore is one of the oldest ski areas in New England and New Hampshire. The ski area features 56 trails served by seven lifts on a 1,200 foot vertical drop. Cranmore rises directly from the historic ski town of North Conway. Ben Wilcox is my guest. Ben, welcome to the storm. So good to get you in here. How are you feeling on this crisp fall Monday morning?
0: I feel great. It's great to be here. And I really appreciate you uh, including me in the podcast here. It's great. Well, pleasure is all
1: mine, Ben. I've been wanting to make this one happen for a long time. So very glad we're here. You know, the big news this off season up at Cranmore has been the ongoing construction of the Fairbank Lodge. Tell us about this new structure. What is it replacing? How big is the new facility? What are the bells and whistles? And how much is this going to improve daily life at Cranmore?
0: Well, I know uh, the Fairbank Lodge. We're extremely excited about because it's it's the third phase in our master development plan for the base area, and the first two phases were residential, thirty seven condominiums. So people saw that and they loved the look and the feel, but it really didn't have a big impact on the day skier that came to Cranmore. So the old lodge, that what we call the ski mobile station, was an assortment of one addition after addition over the last 50 to 60 years. So taking down that building was quite interesting as well, uh, because it was just (laughs) we found an old log cabin encompassed Mm. uh, encased in the building and uh, pulled out some of those old logs to keep as mementos and things. But yeah, so that that came down in April of 2022 and then we went immediately to work on the Fairbank Lodge and a lodge is going to be just under 60,000 square feet of space so it's it's a very large building and approximately 25 to 30,000 of that if you take our new patio will be day lodge space. And then we have built additional condominiums on the top two floors as well. So it's a a combination day lodge for the first two floors, top two floors, more condominium whole ownership units that we've been developing since the first phase of this project. So the lodge itself, super excited because the old lodge, we could seat about 350 people, lot of odd dimensions to the building and you know little weird step ups everywhere and kind of difficult to maneuver and and function out of and it also of course being 50 plus years old was a little difficult to operate out of at times so this is going to be extremely exciting with about 600 seats for our guests uh, coming in and really improving the day lodge experience for us with a whole new food court that will be called the Ski Mobile Station, again, keeping our history alive and reflection of Cranmore's rich history. And then we'll have a ski shop on the first floor. We'll have a day locker club space for, for people who want to just, um, they could have a second home in the area. They could just be our regular season's pass holders that want to have a place to store all their stuff for the season. And then, of course, we'll have a new bar called Kessler's, named after Hans Kessler, who was a famous Ski instructor from Austria who came over with Hannes Schneider back in the day to really put Cramar on the map back in the 30s with Hannes' contribution to bringing skiing to America. So we're really extremely proud of our rich history. You're going to see some great historic murals in the building. And it's been a lot of fun because um, <laughs> the, the, good, the good news is it's this building is a one of a kind because we designed it specifically for the site and to make it a day lodge slash residential building if you talk to our builder and everybody else they say that's the good news and then the rough news is this building probably has never been built before so uh <laughs> it, it uh you know it isn't a cookie cutter building it's a it's custom and right. designed so i could go on and on but it's where we're real excited and we're going to be moving in there in mid-december so uh getting ready just in time for christmas here
1: That is so interesting the way you laid that out, Ben, and I have so many follow-up questions. What I want to linger on quickly is that log cabin. Were you able to figure out anything about the history of that structure and what it was?
0: Well, there's some original photos of a log cabin at the base right there, and the ski-mobile mechanism was built right into that area as well. So over the years, they had pulled all the mechanical aspects of the ski-mobile out of the basement and under... The building but you'd go into sections of the building and you would see signs of that old wood log surface and you'd be like wow that's interesting that's kind of random and when, when they took down the building all of a sudden what was left was this little log cabin which had been kind of cut in many ways just to make the additions work over the years but uh i thought it was funny because so we, we we took down the building which was a pretty big deal And a lot of it was concrete. But back in the day, I don't think they were taking buildings out. They just kept building over them, I guess. So it was kind of interesting.
1: I mean, just from a personal point of view, as I mentioned in the intro, you've been there since 2004 and obviously spent a lot of time in this building. I'm not sure if your office was in there, if you had a separate structure for that. But just personally, how hard was that decision to take that building down? And how do you cope with that when you're, when you're, Taking down a piece of the ski area's history, but you know you're you're making it better overall. I I think it's probably kind of like taking down an old chairlift, right? You you know it's going to improve the experience, but there's still some no- nostalgia attached to it. Was that the case at all with you for this building, or were you just glad to see it go?
0: No, there's definitely a lot of nostalgia with the building. I will say it probably was not the most beloved building on our property. Okay. We have a, a ski pub right next to it called Zips Pub, which Use these late 1800s farm post and beam uh, effect. And so it's called Zip's Pub, named after Herbert Schneider, who's Hannes' son. And it's got a tremendous amount of charm. And most people, if I get any kind of people concerned, um, that pub is still there. Um, It will be coming down in the future, which... I may have to move out of town when we do that but uh um where are my challenge as i've told our architect i said we have to take those old beams and repurpose some of that and try to integrate that into the new restaurant and we'll we'll call the new restaurant zips as well so we'll we'll, we'll it'll be new but we want to capture that charm but going back to your question about the first bill that the building we just took down there's definitely still nostalgia because Old ski mobile came out of that sort of area, and it it was definitely uh, something that was difficult. But you you hit it on the head with we had an old furnace in there, we had water in the basement, we had you know there there were a number of things that the the building really um, did its time. So uh, I I think even our staff was like it's time for a new lodge. So they they got the whole new lodge thing. The pub it's going to be a little more of a challenge, I think.
1: So there's all kinds of ways you could have gone to honor your history. The name of the lodge will be the Fairbank Lodge. Tell us about that name, who it's named after and what the significance of that is.
0: Yeah. So if you look at Cranmore's trail map and and we put in a triple chair back in 2013 on the backside to replace the old uh, East chair double. And we call that the Schneider triple after Herbert Schneider. Um, because there's a lot of things named after Hannah Schneider, who was the pioneer of skiing, who came to Cranmore in the 30s. And uh, you see a lot of Schneiders, you see a lot of Austrian references to our trail uh, names, to our buildings, the Alberg Children's Center. And um, we were about, well, we're obviously about 10 years into our relationship with the Fairbanks. And Brian Fairbank was being inducted into the Ski Hall of Fame. And... um Our staff sat down one day and said, we're going to start coming up with a new name for this building. And we immediately thought of uh, Brian and and the Fairbank family as a whole, really, because them coming to Craymore in 2010 uh, was really pretty historic as well. Because it it was a time when Craymore, as as we like to say, needed a hug and uh, needed some attention. And Brian and Tyler's passion for the ski industry really has made a huge difference for Cranmore. So we, as a staff, got together and said, let's propose to call it the Fairbank Lodge. I think we have a lot of things named Schneider and a lot of things named after Austrians and and key figures in our history. But really, the Fairbanks are a big part of our history now being 13 years in here with us as the ownership group. Did they embrace that, the Fairbanks? They did. I think Brian was at first. They were kind of like, "Oh, I, I don't know if we want." Uh, yeah, that's a little awkward to uh, endorse the building being named after us. And and I said, "Well, that's why we're proposing it to you because I try to grab the significance of Cranmore's history, and I and I love Cranmore's history. It's it's one thing that when I came there, I, I guess I didn't completely. I've lived in the area a long time, but it. When I got in there, met the staff, met the tradition, went to Austria with the Schneider family to go stay with them. And I was like, wow, this is just amazing. And so so when we did name it the Fairbank Lodge, Christoph Schneider, who's the grandson of Hannes, came up to me and says, that was a good call. That was a good call. Yeah. Fairbank's really done some amazing things for Cranmore. So getting uh, Christoph and uh, other people to endorse that it was a good move, I thought was great.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, Brian Fairbank has been on this podcast shortly after he was inducted into the Hall of Fame or shortly after they announced that he would be inducted in the Hall of Fame. And he told his story of turning Jiminy Peaks from basically a backwater into one of the most well-built ski areas in certainly in Southern New England and perhaps in the entire region. So certainly well-deserved and a nice honor for him and for the family. You know, this lodge Ben, as you mentioned, is just part of a larger base area redevelopment project. And this is, I believe you said, phase three or phase two of this. Lay this out for us. What have you done so far? And ultimately, what is this redevelopment going to look like when you're finished?
0: Sure. It all really started in um, 2009 when the Fairbanks started their due diligence on the property and the amount of detail that went into understanding the mountain was extremely important to Brian and Tyler Fairbank. We spent about a year on due diligence. Brian always jokes. He goes, yep, on version 28 of our, our financial <laughs> model, I was finally feeling good about it. And right. um, so we, we, we spent a lot of time. But the, the very first thing that was done was really their focus on the mountain. We had a lot of deferred maintenance at that time and some major lift uh, improvements that were needed. And so they said, the first thing we're going to focus on is the mountain. So they, they focused on new lifts. Uh, We got a, we replaced an old double that was on the South part of the mountain with a fixed grip quad. We replaced that backside lift with a, with a triple versus a double. We moved an old double over to the children's center, making that really, fantastic area and tapped a lot of underutilized terrain. And then they really went to work with me on a lot of the older buildings. We did fix up some of the older buildings that were still worth fixing up and spent a lot of time on that. And then really the big kicker too, was to take us to year round. We really took the model from Jiminy peak that was successful with their summer park and integrated a mountain coaster and a number of things in the summer at Cranmore. And uh, being in North Conway, it was kind of a hit right out of the blocks because we're really busy. So their first focal point was to get the mountain, I'd say, competitive and up to speed. A lot of focus on snowmaking as well and on grooming and on getting that, that ski product up a notch. We also greatly expanded our tubing park and made that even a more successful part of our operation. So... A lot of focus on that. And then Brian came to me, i never forget, in 2013. And um, he was working with an architectural firm that had done a lot of development work out west and uh, some stuff at Stowe, uh, Bull and Stockwell. And Brian working with us, he we kind of came up with this vision of what the base area would look like. Because what Brian said is, well, we've got the ski area up to a, a good level but now your base lodgers are way undersized, they're outlived their life. So time to come up with a master base area development plan. So the first thing we did was we got the first residential building, well, pretty much designed the whole thing to a six phase process, which is a combination of condominiums, introducing residential full ownership to the resort, and then also replacing our aging base lodges. So pretty ambitious because when I looked at the whole thing, I was like, wow, we're, we're actually going to be replacing about 80% of what we have
1: here. <laughs>
0: wow. So uh, Brian always used to joke with me and say, well, get a good pair of sneakers because we're, we're, you're going to need them. You're going to wear out several pairs during this. <laughs> and uh, we had fun. And they, they are just so passionate about the ski business. And they understand that introducing this residential aspect with your base lodges, helps fund the base lodges, first of all, which are, are very expensive. And they also bring new families and families to the resort that want to commit to the resort. So that was the premise of the efforts. As I said, the first two phases were two buildings that merged into one that became 37 condominiums. Then we actually did a, I call it a, a sub-phase, which was we had an old fitness and tennis facility that was built back in the Volvo tennis days, which was another famous part of Craymore's history. And it was a huge tennis facility that we had run it as a fitness center. And uh, it was good, but again, very tired old building that really needed to be replaced. So um, we actually worked with a nonprofit and they moved the fitness center to another location in the Valley by donating all the equipment and kind of got out of the fitness center business for the resort. And then we took that land and found a partner uh, Marriott property that wanted to uh, put a Marriott at the base of Cranmore. So we did that along with replacing these old little buildings that we had to run our tubing park and we built a whole new base lodge for the tubing park as a part of the, the development. So now we have this really nice lodge for the tubing park that's a big part of our business. And uh, we built also an amenity center for the condominiums there with a pool and a little fitness room. And now we also have this Marriott that just was completed in February. So that was a little bit of a, like I said, wasn't in the original master plan, but kind of it emerged as a, as a good companion to what we were doing because it brought an on-site hotel right on property. And the, the, the guy that owns it is a gentleman named Richard LaFrance and his family, and they grew up skiing at Cranmore and are real loyalist to Cranmore so they were like kind of giddy excited to open a hotel at Cranmore. So, you know, we're we're kind of tying all these relationships and everyone that sort of adores Cranmore into this. So, going back to the phases, the third phase is what we're doing now, the new day lodge. The fourth phase we've actually started on already and it, it's going to be 17 more condominiums but a whole new ski patrol center slope side end of the building. That will will be taking our ski patrol out of an old basement area that's in the old pub, and moving them to really some beautiful facilities that are really easy to you know access and and that's the fourth stage that's underway right now. In addition to us finishing the third phase, and then we'll have two more phases left in our development, which. I'm hoping we'd have done in the next four to six years so that the whole project would be done. And that's gonna be amazing because it'll take our our day lodge space to close to 60,000 square feet versus 26 to 30,000 square feet we had. So doubling it, and then introducing that new residential component to the resort too, which, which is great. One philosophy that's interesting with the project too is that you'll see a lot of these base area development projects, integrate retail and a lot of things. Well, we're integrating all of our skier service. We'll have a ski shop and a number of things like that, too. But with North Conway right on our doorstep, we're we're right in the center of town. You know, the Fairbanks always said, well, we don't need to build 10 restaurants and we don't need to build retail stores and all kinds of things because that's the strength of North Conway. So North Conway brought a lot to the table of, you know, especially their interest because it really had a lot of amenities already in place. Yeah, there are
1: not as many ski areas where you can stay right on the mountain in New Hampshire as one would probably suppose. And that is really gonna be a strength once this master plan is finished. You know, when you announced that phase four, which is called the Lookout, Ben, you had this interesting quote that you wanted to make Cranmore into, quote, one of the most progressive ski resorts in New England, end quote. What did you mean specifically by
0: that, Ben? I think that we've been living on our history, which is great. And I cherish our history, but we're moving into an area now where our facilities are going to be real state of the art. For example, our lodge, I've had more brides and grooms come to look at the old pub for a wedding and go, this is great. We love it. And I go, well, heads up, there's no air conditioning and there's no this and there's no, you know, and they, and so we, we don't, we don't always, you know, people go, oh, well, thanks, but no thanks. And I think what we're doing here is not only creating fantastic facilities for the winter, but it's going to give us even more strength as a year-round facility to do weddings and trade shows and functions and things. And also you can rent a condo at the property. So in addition to staying either at the Marriott, you could rent a condo. We have our year-round summer uh, attractions going. So I look at it going, I get to go out and ski once in a while when I have a free moment uh, <laughs> in my free time. And, and you know, I, I, I cherish a lot of the eastern ski resorts. But one thing I look, I keep reflecting on looking at Cranmore. I go, boy, we're really going to be a place where people will come and go, this is really special. Like I told you, I've put a lot of time into also celebrating our history in the interior design. The exterior has a very mountain feel maybe a little more like you'd see out west, maybe to some degree, but the insides are going to really cherish those historic prints and, and big murals on the walls and things like that. And so when I say progressive, I mean, we've gone such such a radical sort of old style resort to something that's very comfortable and, and keeping up with the times.
1: So the ski area has a rich history, no question. And it sounds like you have a very strong vision for the future. Another part of that identity, Ben, is what you've mentioned, which is the proximity to North Conway. And there's not really that many villages tied right to ski areas in the east as there is in the west of Aspen or Telluride or Steamboat or these. And Cranmore might be the closest we have to a ski area being right in town. And it's not quite as proximate as Aspen where you can just ski down to the bus. But tell us about that relationship with North Conway. How important is that to Cranmore's identity?
0: Well, I think it's extremely important because you'll see some mountain towns will have a a large ski area and then a very small infrastructure at the bottom and some small town-like features. North Conway has a long history and I'm actually excited because I was asked to sit on the 10-year master plan committee for the town of Conway. Mm. And, and Conway is kind of an interesting place because it's it's this farmland, there's mountain areas. There's retail. There, it's it's really an assortment of quite a diverse area for a mountain town. And one of the things that I recently was in a meeting, and they all said, you know, what's really important about our region is being there for recreation. And it's our our brand as a town is really about providing recreation and enrichment to people's lives. And they have an affection for Cranmore and they've been very supportive along the way of our development and growth. I think sometimes they get a little shocked because they're like, Whoa, you guys are moving. (laughs) Right. But they've been very supportive and worked with us very well. And we have a great relationship with the town and the community. We are super connected with the community with um, school programs approximately 800 school kids out of the elementary school come over and participate in their school programs, which is a very novel and one of the largest programs, I think, in the country, just based on our sizes, the community. And we really have had these long ties that have gone back to the 30s and 40s. So so the connection's always been there, and North Conway's gone through a lot of growth recently as well. And I think there's a little discussion about trying to keep a little more control of that growth because we've got many new hotels coming to town and many new things happening. But but I'd say in general, a very close relationship. We know that the skiers experience is going to be about visiting the shops downtown or going to a local restaurant run by um, local people. So it's it's been a a nice partnership with our town here.
1: I think locals who are listening to this would love any insight you have on what that 10 year plan has to say about traffic and maybe getting a little better handle on that, that seems to be the choke point where, you know, Conway has really good infrastructure, but the the road sometimes just gets congested. And that's the one pinch point that spreads out and affects everything else.
0: Yeah, I, I think a, a big game changer which if if you go back to the seventies and eighties when the Volvo tennis was happening and you know North Conway's been very popular for a long time. There was a time, and I'd say 70s, 80s, and going into the early 90s when people were writing off our community because they were like, oh, North Conway? Yeah, sat in traffic there for two hours and couldn't move. And uh, they put in a road called the North-South Road about 20 years ago that actually parallels the main, what we call the Strip. And that road really gave, first of all, probably the first five years, the locals, they didn't really overly advertise it. It was great for the locals because we could get down to the grocery store now without having to plan our whole day. And that road has been a game changer and it really has broken up some of the traffic. The the town is still working really hard on the uh, Conway part, just south of North Conway. Coming into town, there's a little bottleneck there and they're working with the state to, to kind of eliminate lights, go to roundabouts. So they're jumping on that. There was an original concept of a bypass that would go around the whole town. And that was mostly to get logging trucks that were going up to Berlin and the northern part of the state. And that that industry has died off, really. So that whole bypass was abandoned. But now the, the big discussion has been more about controlling traffic and trying to get improved flow. So believe it or not, it's better now than it's ever been. Ben. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's just, we still have a little bit of that reputation back from the, I think, 70s, 80s and 90s when it was really a problem.
1: So interesting set of problems. And it sounds like you're working closely with the town to fix that. Curious here, Ben, how long you've been part of the Conway community? Did you grow up in the region? Did you grow up skiing? I know you worked at Bretton Woods before this, and we can get into that a little bit in a moment. But are you native
0: to the area or where did you grow up? Well, full disclosure, I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, uh, okay. so that's always uh, the, the <laughs> funny conversation that we, we start that with. But uh, right. my folks had a small house just south of Conway, actually a budding King Pine ski area down in East Madison, small uh, great area. So I grew up as a kid skiing there and visiting this house that was out in the middle of the woods and grew up in Massachusetts till I was about 14. And really having spent time up in this area, my goal as a, even as a kid was, I, I really want to find a way to live up in the White Mountains. And that was always a kind of a, a kid dream almost because uh, lived in Massachusetts had its very positive parts, but wasn't completely positive <laughs> because it was very busy and a different type of uh, environment. So basically they moved up here when I was in high school. So I ended up going to high school right here. And I got involved with Nordic skiing on the cross-country ski team with the, the local high school. And uh, we we were state champs. And we I really just had a great time with that. So moved up there. And then after high school, I went to University of New Hampshire, Nordic skied there a little bit. And then after college, I said, well, maybe I'll live on the seacoast of New Hampshire. And so I lived in Portsmouth. I got a job as the PR person for the Portsmouth Chamber of Commerce, and I thought, wow, this is great. My career is getting going. I, I studied communication and PR in, in college and um, started that, but I, I was wearing a jacket and tie every day, and I was coming into work, and I, and I was just like, yeah, I, I miss Conway. I got to get back. So about, I left that came up and accepted a job as an assistant ski manager for a cross country ski shop in Jackson called the Jack Frost shop. And it was kind of a magical year. I was, I don't know, I'm trying to think how old I was. It was, uh, I think I was about 23, 24. And just all of a sudden I went from wearing the suit and tie and then coming up now I'm working at this ski shop where I'm teaching cross country ski lessons. I'm interacting with a lot of people that love skiing. I love the staff. And the best part of it is I met my wife, now 32 years married, at the ski shop. And so we met there and uh, it was just one of those years I look back on it and I go, boy, that was, that was a year. That was great. But then I realized, I said, well, geez, then March and April came and they said, well, you actually don't work all summer. <laughs> they, oh, 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 boy. So uh so I got a job. I got an, offered a job at the Aditash Equine Festival. They had a big equestrian event going on up there. And I had some event background management from school and and the job at in Portsmouth. So went to work for that. And then Aditash actually offered me a job as their PR person where I worked for five years. And I knew a lot of people at Adatash because I was from the area and had a really good experience there. But then I found out Bretton Woods was looking for a marketing director, but also a Nordic ski director. And I said, boy, how perfect is this? Because I had gotten into that downhill ski business and uh, I learned to ski at King Pine and had skied at all over you know cranmore and Aditash growing up as well and so became a better alpine skier over the years but really my first take was with that Aditash experience and then going to Bretton woods i was able to run the nordic cross-country ski area but also do marketing for the alpine area and then the big game changer for me was the mount washington hotel which a lot of people know right at the base of mount washington spectacular hotel the local uh, ownership group purchased Bretton Woods after I had been there for about four or five years. And I'd gotten to know them over that period and uh, they seemed to like me, which was good. And um, they said, you know, we really would like you to be our sales and marketing director for the entire resort, the hotel, all the condominiums, all the ski resort aspects of it. And I got to work with a gentleman named Chris Elms up there who they brought in to be the new GM. And we really built a good friendship. He's still the GM up there a great guy. So during that experience, we opened the Mount Washington Hotel year round. It had only been opened in the spring, summer, fall. And we really doubled the size of Bretton Woods and put in a lot of new lifts and trails and did all that work, which was just fantastic. So that was my experience at Bretton Woods that led me up to sort of Cranmore eventually.
1: So it sounds like you had a good thing going at Bretton Woods, had all these different fun challenges and you're right in your wheelhouse with the Nordic stuff. What ultimately, how did the opportunity come up to lead Cranmore?
0: And why did that appeal to you? Well, it was interesting because I came home one night and I, I, during this whole period, I've lived in North Conway. So I drive up to Bretton Woods about 35 minutes north. And um, all of a sudden uh, I came home one night and my my wife and I have one daughter. Her name's Jillian and she was eight years old and my wife kind of said, Hey, I got to talk to you about something. I said, what's that? She goes, I just enrolled Jillian in the season long program at Cranmore called rattlesnakes. And I said, okay. what? I said, I'm the marketing director for the Washington hotel and resort in Bretton Woods. <laughs> and you're putting our daughter at Cranmore. And she said, well, let me tell you Ben. she goes, all our friends are there. We, we live in this town. Huh. And that's, that's what's important. And I know you want her to come up there and they have a good program up there too, but she doesn't know anybody up there. It's not good. So I said, okay, so I go what up to Breton was, I got a little bit of an earful on that one. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, what was it really kind of interesting about that year is I, I went down to Cranmore and spent a lot of time with her while she was in the program and got a chance to you know ski with her there, and I got to know them out a little more and i I knew it just as a kid growing up, but it was just odd and then, at the end of March, I get a phone call from Tom Day, who was running Waterville Valley, saying, "Hey, we're looking for a general manager for Cranmore. I think you should do it and right. And I was kind of like, whoa. Oh. and it was it was a hard, to be honest with you, it was a hard decision because we had done so many good things at Bretton Woods. I was like, "Ooh, I don't know Cram." well." let me look at it. So I spent some time researching it and meeting with the Booth Creek. Uh, it was owned by a company called Booth Creek at the time, which was a a group of former Vale execs who had formed this company and they owned Waterville Valley and, and Loon mountain too. So I I was just really inspired from meeting them because they, they shared a lot of their principles that they, they had to run ski resorts and a lot of them were Vale practices that they had learned. And I had never really been exposed to a lot of that. So it was kind of it was extremely I call it my master's degree in ski area and a lot of really good stuff that I took. And also working with Tom Dave, who was at Waterville at the time. Now he's at Gunstock and uh, Rick Kelly at Loon. It was just nice to have this team of people to work with. So that was very attractive. And Chris Elms, like I said, at Bretton Woods was still a very close friend and is to this day. And uh, we've stayed uh, colleagues and like I said, really good friends over the years as well. So it seemed to make sense. And and I figured this is a great opportunity. I I look right at the mountain, pretty much through the woods from my house. It's right here. And uh, I should really I should do this. And the interesting thing that I was a little worried about was I said, geez, Cranmore is a smaller mountain. I just I hope people really um, when I get there, the staff doesn't have this like, well, we're just a little mountain and we're this and we're that. And I found it just the opposite. Like all the people that I met there, their pride factor and their love of that mountain was, was stronger than what I felt at Bretton Woods and even at Adetach before. I'd never felt anything like that. And it, and it was because multi-generations had worked there and people adored the mountain beyond anything I'd ever seen. So that really struck me And it. I realized, wow, I just, I took on quite a responsibility here. And uh, there was a lot of pressure. So that's kind of how it started. And I was really thrilled about that. Cause like I said, I met the Schneiders, went to Austria, learned more about the culture. And people really recognized me even over there and said, oh, this is the general manager of Cranmore in, in the middle of Austria. And they say, wow. oh my gosh, you are the general manager of Cranmore? So it, it was really, it's it's been, a, I mean, I'm, this will be my 20th season now. And it, it's been fantastic as far as, uh, I think the people has been a, a huge part of what I cherish here. Plus it was fantastic to grow up with my daughter and have more time with my wife here because I was right here in town, not driving out of town every day too. So that was a real plus.
1: So it sounds like you landed in a great situation and had a lot of admiration for Booth Creek and the folks who ran that. And and what they were able to do, now that company is severely downsized. They only own one ski area now, Sierra Tahoe out in California. So you were there for six years under Booth Creek, and, and then there was this transition to Fairbank Group. So tell us about that transition, Ben. What was that like? And when did you realize that as much as you liked Booth Creek, the Fairbank Group was the right long-term owners for Cranmore?
0: yeah it was interesting i i went out to lake tahoe my wife's actually from california originally and we went on a little family reunion and i said oh i, I might as well stop in and see the execs at booth creek and uh, i stopped in and saw them and this was like 2008 2000 late 2008 and they uh said oh um yeah i think it's going to be hard for us to keep cranmore in our portfolio so if you could help us find somebody <laughs> um, and I, I kind of came back to my my wife at the family room I said, oh boy, because um, I was <laughs> like, oh, I, I wonder what's going to happen now. So that was a little uh, interesting because I didn't really expect to hear that. And so I kind of was getting my head around that, and and then Booth Creek was involved with a company called C N L, which was a real estate investment trust, and they had done some some work with them from uh, I'll just call it from a business perspective, and that I can probably that's a, that's probably a whole other podcast, but uh, um, but they were also working with the Fairbanks a little bit too. So a gentleman by the name of Steve Rice was working for uh, C N L, and ironically, Steve is somebody I knew because he was the marketing director back several years earlier when Cranmore celebrated its 50th anniversary. And he was the marketing director for Cranmore. And he was a guy that was local to New Hampshire. And I knew Steve a little bit. And so when Booth Creek was looking for for somebody to take over Cranmore, working with CNL, Steve went to the Fairbanks and said, you gotta meet Ben Wilcox and come over to Cranmore. So that, that sort of started the wheels moving. And I want to say it was 2009. And uh, we had an initial first meeting and I, I knew of them, but I I'd never actually met Brian and Tyler. So I knew their reputation. And I was I was really excited about it, to be honest, because I was like, I know what these guys have accomplished. And I know they, they have a great reputation. And it's so nice that they're fairly close too, because it was, it was sometimes a challenge to have your you know ownership group out in California and So this was exciting and we had some great initial meetings and they really wanted to hit the ground running with Cranmore. And they, they said, you know, we've done this before. Do you want to do this with us? And it just became a very positive thing for everybody, Cranmore uh, for me. So, you know, thinking, oh boy, we might sell the resort and I might be moving somewhere else. it, It was something where I realized that they they saw sort of the value in me a little bit and and our whole staff and i think of course when you see some of these transactions go through the first thing they do is clean house bring in new people they they had the opposite they were like well we need this to run and you have a great team but you need you need some support you need some capital and we we're like yes yes so it was a lot of work and it was a it was a great transition and biggest thing i say about the fairbanks is they're ski people they they Number one, no. They said the number one thing is you've got to have a great ski experience for your skiers. And that is number one. And then the rest of the stuff is important, but it's all to support the ski experience. So I you know, I think people sometimes see us building condos. and go, oh, you're just making a bunch of money on condos. and Well, it's a bigger plan. And the bigger plan is to support us replacing old buildings and having Cranmore be here for the next hundred years. And they have a real pride factor for the work they do. And, it, and it's been a perfect fit for, for myself and the staff here. So it's been good.
1: So, right away, as you mentioned earlier, Fairbanks did some lift upgrades. They put in the Schneider double, the triple chair to replace the old double. They put in the south quad lift. They moved another lift, the Seymour lift, to a beginner area. Last year, or Maybe the year before, at this point, the they upgraded the Ski Mobile Express, which was your high speed quad that goes base to summit, and that lift dated to 1995. I think a lot of folks probably were hoping for a new lift there, but you know, I had this conversation with your colleague Bill Carnes over at Bromley, and they did the same thing—they rebuilt their summit high speed quad. And I also talked to Boyne executives about this a lot because they will rebuild lifts, and they said, "What folks don't understand." And I talked to, to Loon Mountain last year and they said, it's basically a new lift, right? When you when you take it out and you rebuild it and you, and you take it apart like that. So take us through the upgrades to the Ski Mobile Express that you did last year and ultimately why, if you considered replacing the lift altogether and ultimately why it just made sense to upgrade it instead.
0: Well, I think there hasn't been a big outpouring of people needing more lifts. I think we were getting more of that prior to the Fairbanks coming in because we had old doubles and things that just were, I mean, you'd have 40 minute lift lines, things like that. All that's kind of gone away. So our our lift capacity is pretty solid right now, but people are so affectionate of the high speed quad that we have at Cranmore. And to be honest, I I don't, I think if that lift had not gone in in the mid nineties, I'm not sure we'd still be here because that lift is really paramount to what we do. So. There wasn't really a push at this stage yet to upgrade it to a six-pack or anything beyond that. It was more about the concern about it having the old analog uh, systems. And it, your biggest stress as an operator is, boy, what if we get to Christmas week and there's a part we can't get? And then you're sitting there with your premier lift. And Cranmore's premier lift is that lift. If, if that lift stops, we can get you up the mountain, but it's it's a little <laughs> It's a little challenging. So this, um, actually, uh, Bill Carnes had called me from Bromley and said he had done the initial research on this and really said, you know, th- this is something we've got to do. And and their lift vintage was about the same as ours. And, and he just said, this is really, this is the right road for us to go. And it really was a great move because it brought all the safety features up to speed. It brought basically us in the game so that if we did need to repair the lift it now has modern infrastructure that can be updated by by doppelmeyer and you know there were times when a doppelmeyer young technician would come out look at the old high speed quad that we had and he'd open the cabinet and then he'd shut the cabinet and go you got to make a different phone call um and then try to find somebody else to come because he's like i'm not trained in this i'm trained right in this So, so um, like they're able to now remote in to look at our lift, even from their headquarters. And it was a good investment and it it was more affordable than replacing the lift by far as well. So that was another factor in it. So we kind of look at it and say, well, is this going to get us another 20, 30 years out of this lift? And they're like, yes, as long as you do the maintenance and everything continues, you should have no problem. So. If anything people have said to me when it breaks down or anything in the past, they're like, you've got to make sure this lift runs because without this lift, Craymore is really in a hardship. I think Bromley's the same way. They they kind of live off that high speed quad too. So I'm I'm a big fan of that lift and, and so we're we're happy that it's where it's at now. So it
1: sounds like you're happy with the upgrades. it, it may be curious. To folks who are not so familiar with Cranmore and its history, why it's called the Ski-Mobile Express. Tell us about that name, Ben, and how that ties into Cranmore's history.
0: Yeah, so Ski-Mobile, which I've used that name a few times, was the original lift that was put in back in 1938. The gentleman that founded Cranmore, built Cranmore in 1937, started cutting trails, and uh, he, he wanted a modern lift at the time. So he found a local engineer named George Morton. And uh, he said, I want to design. He, basically, they sat down and designed it together. And they used the the concept of the cable cars from San Francisco with a cable system underneath uh, a trellis, sort of underneath a platform, and uh, designed this lift, which were cars that went up the mountain, one person at a time on each car. It went about... 60 percent of the way up the mountain when they first built it well then Hans schneider arrived from austria and he said he said he, he got the famous uh, great story is he got off the train in north conway and looked up at mount washington he goes this is fantastic yeah. and he goes and they go no it's over here this is cranmore and uh and uh, he goes we're going to be very happy here and uh he came over but he was appalled that the lift didn't go to the top he said well, what are you doing he, and he goes well it goes up to just about the you know 60 percent of the way no, 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 you got it. so they built a second track that went to the top. So this lift was really a, an amazing thing at the time because as a kid, you could ride up the lift by yourself. As a older person, you could ride up by yourself. And it, it was just a, a neat way to get up the mountain. I will tell you, it was torn down in 1990. And just before it got torn down, I said, I gotta go over and get a last ride on that. And, and it took me 26 minutes to get to the top. Wow. Um, After getting off the first track and getting on the second and, and it was cool, but I was watching even the fixed grip lifts that they had going up and people skiing down and I'm still sitting on that chair. And so, (laughs) so it was a cool chair. I think the biggest loss when they took it down was the summer business. It was a great motor coach. People went up and it didn't go off the ground too far. So you never really had that fear of a chair lift. So um, it was this classic lift. You see him, you see him out and about and so it was taken down in the 90s which was really a big deal and people were really upset when it came out because it was cranmore's signature lift it's why people oh go to the ski mobile and i i literally not as much today but probably 10 years ago i'd have people come in and they go we just want to go over and look at the ski mobile and i'd say oh (sighs) you know it's not there you took it down Mm. well no it's been down for a long time and 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 it really came down because of maintenance it was a wood trussle structure that was built right up the middle of the mountain. And it was basically like building a wall up the middle of the mountain. You had to groom on one side or the other. Or you had to go through different connections. It had a lot of logistical issues. And then the, the upkeep became too difficult for the, at the time, that ownership group to keep it going. So they, they took it down. The unfortunate thing, they, they took it down. And the only other alternative was a, a long, slow triple to the summit. So those are kind of a little bit dark days for Cranmore. They went through some financial issues problems then. But when I came back, I said, where's the historic stuff? And they had gotten rid of all of it. And they said, well, we had a management team here not long ago that said, we're tired of Cranmore's history, just give it away. And I was like, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. So I had to buy back mobile cars and have them refurbished so I could display them at the resort. And anytime I could find, I worked with the New England Ski Museum, I could find old prints, old images. I went to the library in town. We recreated Cranmore's history over the last 20 years just to, hey, this is a big deal, and we should be proud of this, and we'll carry this into the future. So so the ski mobile is a big deal. You'll still see them on people's lawns and they're getting harder to find and they're getting almost impossible to buy now because they're uh, fading out over the years. So when that lift went in, they they named it the Ski-Mobile Express, which was before my time, but very appropriately, again, a way to sort of uh, celebrate that part of our history.
1: How many Ski-Mobile cars were you ultimately
0: able to buy? I have about four of them right now. Um, the hotel owner who just opened our new Marriott, they just bought one. So there's probably five on property. We're going to hang one right in the new Fairbank Lodge, right over the main staircase when you come up. So we only have about four of them, and we've had them refurbished a few times. So, um, yeah, we're going to have to cherish those because a lot of them, I've seen pictures on people's lawns where it's like they're almost unrecognizable because they're just so old now. Well,
1: if someone's listening to this and they have a ski mobile car and they inherited it and don't know what to do with it, are you interested?
0: I can tell you if I'm not, I have a list a mile long of people (laughs) that want these cars. So if you do have one, please contact me. I'll find a a good home for it. For sure. So the lift fleet
1: is in great shape. Those three lifts, the Fairbanks replaced right away. Schemobile Express just had an overhaul. How about Lookout? Any thoughts long-term on Lookout? This is a 1986 Doppelmayr triple. Seems like just a redundant backup lift. So maybe you're happy with it just how it is, given the probably low hours that it has on it. But what's your thinking around Lookout?
0: Yeah, I I think we're happy right now. I think one of the basis for our growth is not to, we're not like projecting to double our skier visits, but we better see some, a little bit of growth with all this. And I think that would probably force us looking at it. But right now, as we study our busiest days at the resort, our lift lines are are manageable and lookout would be the, the next thing to look at down the road, whether it's maybe starting with a carpet to speed it up as fast as we can, just to get it from a, it's about a 12, 13 minute ride up to you know get it down to maybe 10 minutes or something. But um looking at a few of those things, maybe first and then maybe eventually a, a replacement. But uh, at this stage, I think that's not top on our list right now because it's really just we've already made a lot of upgrades to the lifts we have.
1: So I don't know if this is a problem I'm inventing or if this is something you see a lot. I, I was skiing there on a weekday a couple years back and there were a bunch of spectators there watching their kids race and they were walking up the hill, which... I know even in the summer from hiking a lot of ski areas, that's not super pleasant. I can't imagine in the snow when they're not properly equipped, it's any better. Is that something that you're trying to find a solution for to help folks who want to watch the races get up the hill or, or is that not really a consistent problem?
0: Well, we we've tried to move a lot of our races to Sundays, which has made it a little easier. And you might've been there on a Saturday when we probably mistakenly put a race there and uh, that can be a real problem with a lot of spectators going up. The only thing we've talked about, a race program is run by a, a, a third-party group, Mount Washington Valley Ski Team. And we've talked to them a little bit about maybe eventually a surface lift up in the race area, more for the athletes. But spectator-wise, we've tried to create different routes so it's a little easier to hike up there for them. But yeah, I, I think the only solution we have to that is is just moving the races to different days that are not as busy, so it's not competing with the downhill skiers. But that's probably really the only other lift discussion we've had more recently is, is it a way you can contain all those racers just in one area instead of them getting back into the quad line, that kind of thing. So.
1: All right, Ben, let's talk about Black Cap. This has been a proposed expansion at Cranmore going back really as far as the 1950s. What can you tell us about the potential black cap expansion and what your current thinking is around that terrain?
0: Yeah. So there's a peak up behind Cranmore called black cap mountain. And when the widow of Harvey Dow Gibson, who built Cranmore back in the thirties, when she sold the resort, I want to say it was in the fifties, they owned all the land that was up to this top of this peak called Black Cat Behind Cranmore. So she put it into um, a nature conservancy group and put it into an easement, but did put language in there that said that if Cranmore wanted to develop it for additional ski terrain, we could. So that that is a clause that's in there. It, it has not been a priority due to all the other things we've been working on, but it is something that if you're probably part of one of our condo associations that started back in the 70s and 80s, I, I get asked about this frequently because, of course, they would love to see more terrain and they, they oh, let's, let's you know, we want to add some more stuff to Cranmore. It, it's got some potential. There's a number of issues with the peak would probably bring us up maybe about 300 more vertical. So it probably take us up to about 1,500 vertical. It'd be a potential to bring in like a beginner trail that would bring you back to the top of Cranmore. And then there'd be like basically sort of a bowl effect to it where it's got, would probably create some steep shoots, not super steep, but, you know, steep enough that would be kind of fun terrain, but we're probably looking at about 600 vertical, maybe six, 700 vertical. And then you would ski out of that valley right back into Craymore's core system. So it's definitely been something we've talked about and looked at. I think our main focus again is even though we, we've put a lot of time into Craymore, the core mountain, We still have more work to do on that to improve our water flow, our snowmaking. It's much better than it was, but it's still been more the priority than expanding more terrain. And our niche is really young families who are coming to our our ski programs and being part of, uh, that's really who we are. I mean, we're a family resort and there's a lot of pluses to having one base area that comes down to one location. That's been a strength actually. And especially some of the new young families buying said, my kid can't get lost, right? They're gonna come right back down here. I'm like, yep, it all funnels right back down here. So Blackcap would still probably allow that, but I I never say never, it's just nothing that's on our immediate land list. The potential's there down the road. I think once we get through the base area development, we'll, we'll see where things are and then see if that's something down the road. But at this stage, it's not an immediate priority of ours.
1: So understanding that it's going to be a long time before this happens, if ever, just humor me for a moment, Ben, on me playing Fantasy Ski Resort here. So is there a a plan in a drawer somewhere that shows how many trails, how many lifts, kind of what that pot of skiing would look like if it went into place?
0: Uh, I I think that back when American Skiing Company owned Crayon Moore for a couple of years, that there may have been some drawings. I've seen them in a file somewhere a long time ago. But they were, again, I think it was just conceptualized. But outside of that, that's the last time anybody really did any work on that. So I don't, I don't know how many trails it would be, but I'm, I'm going to guess it would probably be somewhere in the 10 to 12 trails, you know, off that peak ridge. It's like a big ridge that drops down into the valley. And you, you'd probably have a lift that would come out of that valley up to the peak. And that would probably be the best way to access it would be skiing down off the east bowl which would be the backside of Cranmore, and then you'd go up to the peak behind. So as far as exact statistics I don't I don't know. I just know roughly you'd be gaining 300 vertical. You'd probably be skiing down 6 to 700 vertical at the most into this valley and then you'd be either skiing out to get back to Crammore's base or you'd take the lift back up. So I don't know if that gives you a concept but
1: yeah, absolutely. So for the Cranmore faithful listening to this who keep asking you this question, sure. and maybe I can save you a few questions if you just have to explain it once here, what would it take to make this happen? Is it, is it, is it it sounds like there's no way it's gonna happen until the entire base area development is done. And and then what is it? Is it, you know, you start to have way more demand and capacity? Or is there some other, is it just a matter of securing the, the capital or, or maybe even just focusing on it? Sounds like it's not a big priority for you or for management. So, I mean, realistically, what are the things that would have to happen for us to see any kind of movement on Black Cap?
0: I think what would have to happen would be, well, there's also another component that I would throw out is that we we own a bunch of land to the north side of Cranmore. So there's also potential to do some more development right off I call it Craymore proper, you know, off the mountain itself, that might be the first thing you would do before you go to Black Cap. But to do Black Cap, the big issue that we, and you probably have heard this from from Brian, who um, has an amazing foresight of snowmaking, and we'd really have to get a water source up to the backside of the mountain so that we could build an infrastructure of water to make snow, and, you know, one thing about, Cranmore is we're south facing this new approach of really being aggressive with our snowmaking has been a real positive, but we just definitely would need to really, the biggest infrastructure build would be getting more snowmaking and more water storage to make that happen. Cutting the trails and all that stuff would probably be, you know, and then of course the lift would be expensive, but those would be the things that would be almost easier to do than getting all the water that we need to make that work. So that would be probably the number one thing I would work on first.
1: The south facing exposure is interesting because Bromley your sister resort has that same challenge. Just talk a little bit about the extra level of difficulty that that adds to your job and your team's job as far as creating a consistent ski experience for 4 to 5 months when you're having to battle that exposure all the time, which makes it a little more comfortable to ski, right, on sunny days, but it also melts the snow off faster.
0: Yeah, it's got a lot of benefits. Like you said, being out of the wind, we don't have a really next to no wind issues down here in the Valley. And we do have a lot of nice days when sometimes things are socked in up North, but there is then that challenge. And and I think the one thing Brian and Tyler Fairbank have really worked with me on is to understand how to get the most out of our snowmaking system. And they, as you know, um, have their own snowmaking company where they make a gun called the shotgun. And we use a lot of those on the mountain they're extremely energy efficient and they allow us, you know, when we were prior to the Fairbank, we were probably running 30 snow guns at a time. And when I looked at it, I said, Oh boy, we're going to be left in the dust here pretty soon. And they got us to actually the first five or six years, we got up to like 140 snow guns at a time. Oh my gosh and then now we're actually ironically going back to like 180 to 100 at a time but we're increasing the water pressure just to build our capacity up quicker so it starts november 1st for us and we we just go aggressive and and i have to say i've heard war stories of other resorts they are like oh don't make snow because of the energy costs and and the fairbanks are like no we make snow whenever you can if there's a six hour window you go they're aggressive. We always thought we were aggressive, but I didn't realize how aggressive they were. <laughs> and they do amazing work with their snowmaking at Jiminy. And so, again, another great influence from them. But we are sometimes looking at nights when maybe mountains up north are able to make snow. We can't. So it's just, it just makes it that much harder. But as I tell my friends, I say, it's all about making more snow faster, if I, if I had any strategy against climate change, it's really, we just have to be as efficient as we can and, and grab those windows and make as much snow as we can, as fast as we can. And that's been really our MO.
1: Are you on an automated system? No, we're not.
0: It's all manual. And so it, it's something we're looking at in the future. But the exciting thing is Cranmore had snowmaking back in the 70s. We were one of the first areas to introduce it, but we're still replacing a lot of old pipe because they were aggressive back in the 70s and 80s with it but now you know it's an older system and we've we've upgraded it in a lot of ways and it's it's much better than it was but i would probably think that that would be our focal point would be continuing to modernize that especially with with the base area and a lot of things we've done on the mount
1: so another nice differentiator for cranmore is this nice little night skiing pod that you have and cranmore is one of the few ski areas in northern new hampshire to have night skiing Bretton woods does as well first of all how important is that night skiing to the culture at Cranmore? And long term, would you like to expand that network?
0: Night skiing came to Cranmore in the eighties. And I remember when it got launched, and I thought, what a brilliant idea, right north conway of night skiing. I've later learned that night skiing is really a thing if you're near an urban area. So people that go to work, if you look at like a Wachusett or or even Jiminy, I mean they have Great access from Albany, New York. And they have populations, big populations that can go up there for an evening of night skiing. We're in North Conway. So, you know, driving up hour and 45 minutes from Portsmouth or coming up from Boston's, you know, two and a half hours, three hours. And what I learned is that, well, they learned it before I got here, um, is that the night skiing really didn't work financially for them the way they had hoped. So, When I got here, they had actually sort of stopped doing night skiing and we started it again because I had the lights and I said, why, why aren't we doing that? And uh, so we, we did it and we continued to do it, but we've downsized it to just the South Slope now. And it's really become an amenity to the resort for, and, and it's a pretty, it's not huge numbers that come night skiing, but it's, we do that. We have the, the night tubing going on the night tubing actually does better than the night skiing. And it's been a nice amenity, but we're, every year you may see us like, we went, I think originally we had four lifts running for night skiing. Now we're down to like one. So I don't see it expanding in the future. I see us, if anything, maybe improving the lights in those areas. We we do need to do some enhancements there, but probably isolating it more as an amenity for, you know, hey, the kids want to keep going. Great. They can go and mom and dad might go back to to the pub or somewhere else just to to do something else. So,
1: so the night skiing is one part of Cranmore's toolbox and the competitive landscape that you're operating in has really changed tremendously since you got there in 2004 and really just in the last five to six years as Vale entered New England and bought all of peak resorts and Stowe and Okimo and Mount Sunapi, and their Epic pass landed. And then you have the icon pass, to deal with and and of course sunday river and loon are in your neighborhood that are on that product so as you've watched these changes ben overall what is your reaction ben in particular when vale landed hard in new england in 2019 and bought all those peak resorts two of which at and wildcat are direct competitors right in your backyard how did you enact react initially to that change
0: well it in all honesty, it was a little bit of a, a shock because I was like, wow, those are uh, two of our main competitors here. They're right on our doorstep. They're in our valley. I think I was kind of in a wait and see at first to say, okay, let's see what this is going to do. It actually has been, in my opinion, a very positive thing because they're putting some capital in. You know, Aditash is getting their new lift this year. And those are things they need. They need if they're gonna be sustainable and, and keep going. So I, I think from the capital side of things and them coming in, it it took them a couple of years, which I think people were like, hey, how come it's not happening like right away? And our visits continued to grow and, and pass holders were growing and people saw, and and you know my staff and everybody here, we've been here for a long time. We know, I, I don't wanna to tout it, but we know what we're doing. We know Cranmore, we know how to run a good operation. and. There were new people coming in, and they had to figure out how Aditash ran and how Wildcat ran, and and um, so there's a little bit of a, a learning curve there. I think they've got some great management up there. I've met them, and and so they they've kind of come into the fold, and they're improving those mountains. So I, I'm kind of a like you know I think if that improves the reputation of Aditash and Wildcat, that's going to be good for Cranmore because more people will come to the region, and they'll be able to enjoy. Some upgrades that those mountains need. So hopeful that that will continue in that direction. I think they've again with all the change, they're they're still they're still building that.
1: So one thing Vale brought with it was its super discounted Epic Pass, and they actually went a step further and introduced some Northeast specific Epic passes. They they call it the Northeast uh, midweek. There's a midweek version, and then there's the Northeast local pass, and that pass actually the the local pass is a Season pass for Adatash and Wildcat it debuted it debuted at five hundred and fifty five dollars for the twenty twenty three to twenty four ski season. Cranmore season pass is started at seven seventy five, went up to nine fifteen. It's now eleven hundred and thirty nine as of today. We're recording this on October sixteenth. So curious here, Ben. <clears throat> what's the reality been like to compete against Vail Resorts? Because I think the fear was that those super discounted passes, which not only access Adatash and Wildcat, but they access all of the ski areas in, that Vale owns in the region, including some days at Stowe. So the fear was that that would cut into the visitorship at Independent Mountains. What's the reality been? What has it been like to compete against Vale Resorts and their super discounted Epic Pass? and And how have you been able to maintain that pricing power? Because it's a really interesting dynamic.
0: Well, that definitely was another element of being concerned was those past products and uh, we've seen just the opposite we've seen steady growth since those mountains turned over to Vale, mm-hmm. and our awesome. passes continue to grow what i'm finding a little different dynamic which is interesting is that we have now cranmore pass holders that say in the in the old days it might have been like oh i don't know maybe i'll buy an Adatash pass maybe i'll buy a cranmore pass And you'd you'd have that discussion with people. But now what I'm hearing more of is people saying, oh, I have my uh, Cranmore pass, but I have an Epic pass too, or I have an icon pass and and they're buying these passes as companions to them being basic Cranmore and then having this expanded pass, which really gives them their out west skiing and it gives them the local skiing, but It's also a whole different kind of model than what we follow. We have roughly 35, 40% of our skiers are pass holders. And then we entertain a lot of people that are visiting the area that just are here for a weekend or this is their family ski vacation and they're not committing to these pass products. So on any given Saturday, you know, an epic pass may be really filling up one of those areas. We don't have that same model. We have room on the mountain. We we can sell you a day pass. We can do things. So the models have become almost a little uh, much different. And I used to kind of, back in the day, you would go up and count the cars, see how they're doing. And, and now it's kind of like, well, why would we, we don't need to do that. They have their club members, so to speak, with the Epic Pass. And uh, we have our group and, and the dynamics are very different. So I was concerned seeing those prices thinking oh boy you know is that going to move migrate everyone and uh what we've learned is i think with with the fairbanks working with us and supporting and making cream more better and better quality we've been able to really keep our core customer plus introduce a lot of new customers and like i said some people that are real avid they they have the epic pass and they they're doing both. I, I was having a conversation with the GM up at Wildcat the other day, and I just said, boy, it's it's really um, – I, I don't look at you guys as much as direct competitors as maybe I used to because it's a different model.
1: That is super interesting. And Cranmore has so far sat out the urge to join a national pass. You are a member and have been a member for a while of the White Mountain Super Pass, which is an unlimited pass to Cranmore, Cannon, Waterville Valley and Bretton Woods, which are four tremendous ski areas for the best in New Hampshire. Tell us about that product, why you joined it, and why that coalition makes sense for Cranmore.
0: Well, I think when we did see things like the Epic Pass, I've always had a good relationship with Bretton Woods, with Chris Elms up, up there, and uh, we've stayed in touch. And through my time working with Waterville, with Tom Day originally, who was there, and now Tim Smith, and then Canon had a really good relationship with Bretton Woods so we we got together and talked about it and said what if we create this pass and you know it's more expensive than our pass and it's it's a premium pass product compared to any of the individual resort products but we make it so that it allows people to have that flexibility to go to different resorts but we also thought the proximity, you know, you've got Waterville and you've got Cannon on the 93 side. Bretton Woods kind of hugs both the Valley and the 93. And then you've got Cranmore in the Valley. So we thought this kind of covers New Hampshire. And that's why we called it the White Mountain Superpass because we're really on the White Mountains. And the proximity made it a really strong pass for all of us. And it's worked out really well. I mean, it, it's, it's not probably selling, you know, like the way the, the Epic passes and the Icon pass, but it's been a, a, definitely a, a nice place in our product mix. And I, I think the other resorts would say the same thing.
1: You have a similar product with just Bretton Woods called the Sun and Snow Pass. This runs Sunday through Friday. Is that just a product of your relationship with Bretton Woods and having worked there? What's behind that product? Why does that one make sense?
0: Yeah, similar, a strong relationship with them. And then what we find is doing the Sunday through Friday, it's been a really nice pass for people that are especially second homeowners here, maybe people that have retired to the area that go back and forth. Because we, I'd say a lot of our skiers go up to Bretton Woods as well, because we're We have a family mix of terrain, and they have a very strong family mix of terrain as well. So it's been a nice partnership. And we thought of it as, I think Bretton Woods thought, well, this is a good way to get the Valley people up to expose to Bretton Woods. And then for us, it was a nice partnership. Knowing that Atatash Wildcat have a partnership, we have a partnership now with Bretton Woods. So that's worked out really well. So
1: looking at that White Mountain Superpass Coalition, both Cannon and Waterville Valley have been on the Indy Pass for several years now. Is this something that you have considered or would consider joining the Indy Pass?
0: Um, I think I think we would look at it, but at the same time, I think this partnership we have with these these four resorts and our strength as our model being, you know, we have a lot of loyalists to Cranmore. I guess it hasn't been top of mind of interest at this time, just because we haven't been interested in expanding our network beyond what we've already got on the table so you know never say never but at the same time at this stage it's not something that we're looking into so
1: Cranmore does have two sister resorts as we've mentioned Bromley and Jiminy Peak they do not share any sort of season pass I think there's actually a college pass where you can ski all three but you do now full pass holders get one day each at Bromley and Jiminy Peak just curious anecdotally or maybe you have the data on this do you see your skiers taking advantage of this It, it seems like Maybe Bromley and Jiminy are closer to each other, and and I'm not sure if folks are driving west necessarily for this, but do you see your pass holders taking advantage of this if they're in the area?
0: We talked about it right at the beginning of the partnership we had with the Fairbank Group, and our market is primarily Boston. And actually, at the time, I thought, oh, well, you're in the Berkshires of Massachusetts at Jiminy. You probably get a lot of Boston people. Well, they get very few Boston people. They get a lot of New York and Bromley's the same way. So Bromley and Jiminy have very similar markets. Cranmore has a different market being Boston, Southern New Hampshire. We do get people that utilize that benefit to come up and ski, but we just, it's a pretty small benefit that doesn't get used as much as you would think just because we're so far apart. It's about a four and a half, five hour drive to Jiminy. It's about three and a half, four hour drive to Bromley. So the synergy of the, the geography of those mountains is not really plays into that, that multi-ticket, you know, thought process.
1: All right, Ben, I hate to end the day on a down note, but I do want to talk about your neighbor, Black Mountain, which has been in continuous operation since 1935, announced last week the Facebook post that it would not open for the 2023 to 24 ski season. How did you react to this news? Black Mountain is one of your closest scariest to you.
0: Well, it was very sad. It was a sad day. For our whole region, as I was mentioning earlier, I have an affection for all the areas in the area: Wildcat, Attatch, Black. So to see the stories posted of, and really what it is is, it's so many great memories people have had a, a meeting their husband or wife at Black Mountain, or you know, you're just reading all these things, and it, it just shows you what our roles are. I think with our outdoor winter community and. It was it was a very sad day, and definitely understanding uh, the challenges that they have with staffing. We we all have a lot of the challenges that they outlined being issues for why they're closing. Hats off that they've been able to run as long as they have, but I it was always a worry point probably for me because I was like, oof, you know, be a shame if that were to close. But you know, I, I I think there's a little bit of vibe and i in the town that oh hopefully somebody might come and pick that up and maybe take that into the future i don't know we have a lot on our plate with cranmore so it's it's not something we're able to do but you never know it it, it could be something that'll be reemerge in the future that's my only thought on it when somebody does make that decision that's a big that's a big decision and we know when that decision is made sometimes it's very difficult to get reopened so lot of good memories there myself. I've skied there myself and a lot of good people work there and, and we, heart goes out to that whole operation. And hopefully they can land on their feet here in, in some new way. That's all I can say.
1: I'm curious how Black fits into that local dynamic that you were describing, Ben, with your changing relationship with Aditash and Wildcat over the years where you used to view them as a direct competitor. And now you seem to have concluded that you're occupying different niches in the market. And, you have your skiers and they have theirs. Did you view Black Mountain as a competitor or was Black Mountain kind of like Magic Mountain is to Stratton where they're not really necessarily competing directly. They're just creating a different experience that appeals to different sorts of skiers looking for a different thing out of their ski day.
0: I I think you nailed it. I I think that's what it was. It was a different, you know, it wasn't a place with, you know, they, they were able to kind of keep the ticket prices in check to some degree, but I think that was another stress point they probably had near the end was that things cost so much to run no matter what you're doing but yeah i think they had a niche right up in jackson and i think that they were you know a lot of sort of local people there and we've we've stepped up like usually we launch a lot of our local passes as we get into november well we've decided with this news well we better get those local pass products out there now just so people have a place to go and put those offerings out there and so I, I think they had a different niche. I think if they they step up and they start building, somebody took it over and started making it into more of a resort. I don't know if it would probably be more of a. Model maybe similar to ours, very family focused. I think right now they had their own place with that, and um, I believe they were on that indie pass too. And I know a lot of people went out. You know that was probably good for them because I heard a lot of people saying they, they wanted to come up to go to Black because they had the indie pass, that kind of thing. So also our chamber of commerce here in town, we have some local products that we do with them, so you can buy these basically ticket booklets that include some tickets to Black, Cranmore, attached Wildcat. It's been a good communal period here in the last couple of years, but that that was extremely sad and outpouring of a lot of industry folks about what can be done. You know, I think we're all brainstorming what can be done, but I'll be honest, when I look at, I'm in phase three of uh, six phases and we still have a lot to do at Cranmore. We're, we're going to stay focused there for now, just because that's what we have to do. So.
1: Yeah, nonetheless, the external pressures continue. Black Mountain in their Facebook uh, post cited, quote, energy costs, unpredictable weather, extreme staffing shortages throughout the region and many other challenges, end quote, as reasons for closing down. Curious from your point of view, Ben, because you've got a business to run and, and you've been doing all these improvements, but you have to deal with all those things. How has that dynamic shifted? I mean, the obvious example I think of is Vail Resorts raising their minimum wage to $20 an hour last year. And and you're probably competing directly with Aditash for staffing, even if not so much for customers anymore. So tell us a little bit about those dynamics and how you've been able to deal with them at Cranmore.
0: Well, I think when we saw that um, press release come out from Vail that they were going to $20 an hour, we're like, oh boy, that's quite a leap yeah. for our region here. So we we definitely had to address that and we brought our wages up a little bit to be probably you know for for the right reasons to begin with that it's just we have to compete more probably more with north conway's a very vibrant business community and there's a ton of outlet stores and restaurants at shopping so if anything it was more to make sure Cranmore could still staff with that competition maybe more than Vale but uh that, that definitely caught our attention when that, that came out. Some people look at us at Cranmore and they see us doing a lot of development. They're like, oh, it's too bad you can't just build a base lodge. Why do you have to build all these condos and all this stuff? And all of that, the things that we're building are going to help our business long term. And they're going to get us a new base lodge that the local person that all of these people can enjoy but it, it, it does cost money, right? Like any business and you have to keep reinvesting in it. And I, I like the formula we have, but to do that, you also need to have enough money to pay people. And so there the has to be, you know, a product that people will be willing to pay for so that you can afford your staff and still compete, which is, you know, I think is a big driving force of a lot of the smaller areas that are challenged right now with that. But I think we all have our strengths, but we just have to make sure we're running the business as strong as we can. So we can pay our staffs effectively and cover costs. I mean, electric costs too alone, have gone way up and it's just about trying to approach it as smart as you can and uh, go from there. But it, it all plays into it and doesn't make it easier, but I think we're, we're on a good road at Cranmore relative to our game plan and it's having to deal with some of these these adversities and we've been much better equipped, I think, because of what we're doing.
1: You know, I talked to Brian Fairbank on this podcast about putting that windmill, wind turbine, up at Jiminy and how that helped to offset some of his power costs. Have Have you thought about doing that at Gramore?
0: We haven't gotten that far. We We've been doing a lot of sustainability projects. For example, all of our condominiums that we're putting in, that we're putting in electric heat pump systems versus traditional heating systems, and that. That's been more of a benefit to probably the condo owners, but in New Hampshire, I, I think we we wouldn't quite get the support, maybe as much as maybe Jiminy at the time when they put that in, they were able to get some real good leverage, I think, from the state. And we've sort of penciled it out a little bit, but it hasn't made sense for us yet. And who knows? I mean, Jiminy's also done some amazing things with solar. Um, we're looking more probably at solar before we look at wind. So... Yeah, it's definitely something on our radar. And I think their approach, again, was uh, what put Jiminy on the map, not just within the New England and East Coast market, but nationally, because, I mean, just amazing what they did to, to, to introduce wind at Jiminy and then do the solar project. And we're, we're all like in awe of that project. We're getting there. We're doing small things here, but um, <laughs> it would be nice to see that happen down the road. But again, it's not on the immediate you know list.
1: All right, Ben, let's end it on a a positive note here. We are recording this again, October 16th. That means you're probably a little over a month away from opening. What is your target opening date at Cranmore? And what are you most excited about for the upcoming 2023 to 24 ski season?
0: Well, we're targeting the day after Thanksgiving, which is our tradition. And if we can open a weekend early, we may consider that. But uh, it all depends on how snowmaking starts up on November but um, probably most exciting things going into this winter is the new lodge having so much space to work with and sort of more modern kitchen equipment and things so that we can um, better serve the guests. Having the hotel, a hotel open actually in February of of this last year, so this will be the first full year with a hotel. And uh, we've done a lot of sort of work to the mountain. And I mentioned earlier, our kids program is one of our marquee things for the mountain and it's called kids rule. And it happens at Gemini Bromley and Cranmore. And we've been running a modified program for a number of years since COVID and getting, we're now moving to the full day program for that again, which is really one of our most popular products and things people come to Cranmore for is the, the kids. So I think getting that program back to normal. and uh, I know people are really excited about that. Our race program is, is growing in kids and that and our season long programs already sold out. So with the momentum of the season plus, Focal point back on, you know, we're we're putting up a new terrain park this year on the the backside, on Lower Kessler. We've worked on some new trail configurations that are sort of more connectors and things to get people around the resort easier. So it's been mostly um, a lot of housekeeping stuff getting ready for the season, but getting things back to post-COVID operations. You know, we were there last year, but last year, of course, we had like portable buildings and all kinds of stuff. So it was was a little bit of a tough winter for us, but this year it'll be back to normal plus we'll have all these great new facilities. So looking forward to that, that's probably the the, the bright light of what's coming here very shortly.
1: Love it. All right, Ben, sounds like you have no shortage of things to do. And I just took a big chunk of your time. So I'm going to give you your day back here. But I really appreciate this conversation. Really appreciate you giving the time here in such a busy time of year. So thank you very much. And hoping that that you can find one of those rare ski breaks to take a run with me this season.
0: I'd love that. That'd be great. Thanks, Stuart, so much.
1: That's Ben Wilcox, President and General Manager of Cranmore Mountain, New Hampshire. Awesome job, Ben. I very much appreciate that. And thank you all for listening. If you like that New England, hang tight, because I am going around the corner in a few weeks to Adatash. I also booked Berkshire East and Catamount owner John Schaefer for a return visit to the podcast in a few weeks. Then we will have Sunday River in the new year. Plenty coming up for the rest of you as well. Park City and Schweitzer are already in the can, and the king of Midwest skiing, Boots and Mountains, is scheduled for next week. The very best way to get those episodes the moment they are live is to pop over to StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers receive podcasts seven full days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.